Good morning. It is a pleasure to stand before you in this pulpit. Uh, I was uh, one of Ben's professors at D Dallas Theological Seminary's Houston campus, and it being a small campus, uh, I get to wear lots of hats. So I taught poor Ben uh, both Greek and Hebrew. Uh, uh, he took two years of, well, two and a half years, well, let's see, I guess it was two years of Greek from me and a year of Hebrew. So poor guy, he was stuck with me for several of those courses. And it was a delight to have him as a student. And it's a delight to see what he's been doing with what we've taught him. Uh, it is always a pleasure to uh, go and visit a, a former student's church and find that he's using everything that we uh, gave him, all the tools and the, uh, the languages and the theology. And uh, it, is a, uh, uh, it is a source for me of godly pride uh, that uh, my students are walking in the truth. So you have a gem in, uh, in Ben Hatch. And, uh, and I am delighted that he is leading this church. So thank you for having me this morning. Uh, I, I love the call of worship, the call to worship passage, Psalm 119, because I, I consider verse 18 of that psalm to be one of my life verses. Open my eyes that I may behold wonders from your law. Uh, what a wonderful psalm that is, celebrating the faithfulness of God in His Word. And this morning, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. And actually, Jonah 1.17 through uh, 2.10. Now, uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 17, and begin reading from there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah 
out upon the dry land. This is such an interesting text because in it we read uh, about the literal turnaround of a wayward prophet. But we have to read the Bible in context. I say this because a surface reading of Jonah chapter 2 might lead someone to the conclusion that the prophet completely repented. After all, he called upon God to save him from drowning and he thanked God for his salvation. Isn't that turning to God? Isn't that repentance? Well, sort of. If you keep reading, you'll find out he wasn't entirely repentant. Now, this is, this is my... Uh, uh, this is my main point here, just in case you fall asleep during the rest of the sermon, just, just understand this, that no one, no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Not even this wayward prophet. And that's, that is basically the lesson that Jonah needs to learn. Now, last week, Ben explained Jonah as a real historical person. Uh, you know, he, he's mentioned again in, in uh, 1 Kings 14 as a historical person. There's, and the reason we say that is there's a bunch of people who say, this story, especially the whale bit, and it's not a whale, by the way, it's a great fish. This story looks like a, you know, like a legend of some kind, right? And uh, so last week, Ben explained Jonah as a real historical person. And I'd like to add a note about the author of the book, of Jonah. Uh, Jonah himself might be the author. It's, it's entirely possible, and, and I am inclined to think he probably is, but I can't prove it. You know, it doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. Isn't that uh, what somebody said? Uh, <clears throat> Jonah himself might be the author, but it could have been a, an observer or another prophet who knew the story well, who wrote the book. But it's in the Hebrew Bible. So we regard the real author to be God himself. Either way, it doesn't matter whether Jonah is the author or whether someone else is the author. Uh, it, it doesn't say, in other words, it doesn't say in the book itself, I, Jonah, son of Amittai, wrote this book. You know, some books say that sort of thing. And then it would be foolish to deny who the author is, right? But here we don't know. Now, I, I say that because the book of Jonah is critical of the prophet from beginning to end. We have a clear view of his failures and his sulks and his discipline from God throughout. I don't know how many times you've read Jonah. If you haven't read it uh, from cover to cover, it'll take you about 10 minutes to read it, actually. Uh, just, just start in Jonah 1.1 and read the whole book, and you'll see. And the author and God, too, want us to see the disconnect between Jonah's piety and his compassion. Now, we don't quite see this yet in chapter 2. And although we don't see Jonah change within the book itself, we have to assume the book was written from the perspective of insights and lessons learned either by an observer or by Jonah himself. Uh, you know, the, the prophets tend, tend to... Uh, to uh, 
group together and, and go through training together. If you, you know, if you read uh, the Elijah and Elisha cycle, remember the, the seminary student who loses the ax in the water? Okay, there's, a, there's a whole group of prophets who work together on things like this. So it could have been an observer. But either way, the author of the book has learned the lessons that God wants him to learn. And uh, the way the book ends points the camera right at you and says, what are you going to do with this? Now, I don't want to steal Daniel's thunder uh, in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to try to stay out of chapter 4 as much as I can, but there's some key evidence in chapter 4 that I'll, I will keep mentioning. And of course, you know, the book is, as, as, uh, as Ben said uh, last week, hey, look, there's no spoiler alerts when it comes to the Bible, right? Uh, you know. So, uh, we will see that Jonah's repentance is only partial. He is sorry to find himself in, the, in this predicament, but he's not fully on board, so to speak. Pardon the pun. <laughs> he's not fully on board. He's, he's not on board the ship anymore either. But he's not fully on board with God's agenda for Nineveh and its people. I want us to see from the form of this song that Jonah's prophetic training and God's gift gives him the ability to express. His thanksgiving is in the right form, but at a key moment in the song, he betrays his dismissive attitude toward the Ninevites. So this is, this is the form of the song, and, and for a moment, uh, you're going to step into a seminary classroom, uh, and we're going we're gonna to mention... Uh, there are several psalm types, and I, I was hoping to get this into the bulletin. There just wasn't room in the bulletin to put all of these here. But there are uh, 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 seven types that students of Hebrew poetry have identified as templates, if you will, for the way Hebrew songs work, or the way the psalms in the book of psalms work. They are lament. And that's, a, that's, more than, uh, <clears throat> that's more than half of them, basically. Uh, praise, and that's about the, well, okay, together lament and praise account for about two-thirds of the, of the psalms. And then there's, uh, there's psalms that are just hymns, and then there are royal psalms, trust psalms, thanksgiving psalms, and wisdom psalms. And these, can be, uh, these types can be applied to other songs you find in the Old Testament, you know, like the Song of Moses or something like that, or Hannah's song in, uh, in 1 Samuel. <clears throat> and it's generally agreed that this poetic prayer in Jonah 2 belongs to the category of thanksgiving song. Okay, so if you wanted to write those down, you could later, but there are eight Thanksgiving psalms that have been identified uh, as Thanksgiving psalms in the, in the book of Psalms, okay? These aren't the only ones in the whole Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, but <clears throat> here they are. Uh, and four of them belong to David. They're Psalms uh, 30, 32, 34, and 40. And then there's one psal uh, psalm by Asaph, and he, he's credited with several psalms in the Psalter, but Psalm 75 is a thanksgiving psalm. And then there are three anonymous psalms, 107, 116, and 118. 
And uh, these are, uh, are a, very a very interesting type of psalm. Now, you know, it makes me wonder, maybe it could be, now this is one of these like, let me speculate for just a second. It could be that Psalm 116, because it's very similar to this song of Jonah, makes me wonder, maybe, maybe Jonah could be the author? I don't know. It's anonymous, so we just don't know either. Okay, now, those are the Thanksgiving Psalms. Now, the Thanksgiving Psalm itself has several parts, uh, five basic parts. And uh, this comes from uh, a commentator uh, on um, the book of Jonah named Stuart Douglas. There's an introduction to the psalm. Now, I've put in parentheses there on the slide, those are, these are the verses that uh, apply to that identification in the psalm itself. So psalm, uh, this, this song in Jonah 2, Jonah 2.2 2 is the introduction to the psalm. And then there's a description of the past distress of the psalmist in verses 3 through 6, an appeal to God for help in verse 7, a reference to the rescue that God provided in the second half of verse 7, and then a vow of praise and or a testimonial, depending on which psalm we're talking about, verses 8 and 9. So, uh, so there's, here's where you've stepped in the seminary classroom. We're, we're taking the, the psalm apart and we're saying, here's the pieces of it. And we can read and apply Jonah's song to our own thanksgiving. And his words are right and true and correct. But I think there's a warning when we read this psalm that we need to carry into this, into this text with us. It's kind of like what Jesus says about the scribes and the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. And I want you to see in this song that Jonah is not practicing what he preaches. Now, the main evidence of Jonah's attitude is in the song itself, or I should say, the main evidence about Jonah's attitude in the song itself is chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There's other places in the book itself that we go to and we say, yeah, Jonah, I don't think you've got the right attitude here. But we're going to see those in chapters 3 and 4 in, in clearer relief. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah's behavior in chapters 3 and 4, well, not to mention chapter 1 as well. Remember, he's running away from the presence of the Lord, it says in 1.3. It says it twice in 1.3. Jonah's behavior in chapters 3 and 4 demonstrates he has no interest at all in persuading idol worshipers to turn from their idolatry. This is, ironically, exactly the job that God has given him to do. But here, now this is key, here Jonah is writing off the Ninevites. You see this? The text of, of verse 8 is literally 
those who uh, pay regard to vain idols, it says, they forsake their steadfast love. They forsake their steadfast love. Uh, if you're reading the uh, uh, New American Standard, they abandoned their faithfulness, I think is what, uh, what New American Standard says. And see, now, the, the, the text is literally, they forsake their steadfast love. But if the ESV had translated it that way, you'd think that he's saying that idolaters lack integrity. And that if you're reading New American Standard, that may be the impression you get. The Hebrew word that translates here in the ESV, steadfast love, is the word chesed. You've probably heard that word, chesed. By the way, it's not chesed, it's chesed. I don't know if you can hear the difference, but it's chesed. Okay. This, this is one of those things that, that you know, I struggle uh, getting students to hear this correctly. It's chesed. Not chesed, it's chesed. Okay, anyway. Never mind. I, I, you know, if, if you want to stay afterwards, I'll, I'll teach you some Hebrew, but here we, here we are. Well, now, this word chesed is usually an expression or a word that's used for God's mercy. Okay, the word chesed is such a, has such a wide variety of meanings that there have been entire books written just on the one word. Okay, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, all these words are used to translate this, this one particular word. Uh, Psalm 107, for instance, Hodu ladonai kitov ki laolam chasdo. Uh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His chesed lasts forever. Uh, so usually, this is a word for God's mercy or His His own steadfast love. So, in our text here in verse eight, their steadfast love in this context means the merciful grace that they could have from God. Does that make sense? The merciful grace that they could have from God. So now, think about what Jonah is saying here. So you see, Jonah is claiming that the people of Nineveh have disqualified themselves from getting God's grace because they're idol-worshiping people. Do we do that? I'll come to the application later, but you know this is that question. This is that burning question in my mind. This is so. Verses eight and nine are probably the most important part of the psalm here. He's claiming that the people of Nineveh have disqualified themselves from getting God's grace because they're idol worshiping people. What's more, we're going to find in chapter four that Jonah actively hopes that they will not turn. Because he wants Nineveh to be destroyed. In fact, the way he says it in chapter 3. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be thrown over, destroyed. Now notice, notice the pious contrast between himself and the idolaters. They do this, but I will do that. They do this, but I will do that. I, in contrast to all those disobedient people over there, says the prophet who 
ironically enough, has been disobedient to the one true God. Note what he does not say in this psalm. He does not say, I will return to you with humble obedience. Even though he's in the belly of a fish after nearly drowning at the bottom of the sea. You see, you see how this works? You, you see how this song works? Uh, verse 17 says, Jonah was swallowed by, well, uh, by, this, by this great fish. And it's only after he's there that we find out that uh, everything that happened to him in the water, like uh, verses 3 through 6 or so, or 3 through 7, happens before he gets swallowed by the fish, right? He's there, at the, he's, he's there at the bottom of the ocean of the Mediterranean Sea and seaweeds wrapped around his head and then this fish gets him. He emphasizes here, instead of, I'm going to come back to you, God, with humble obedience, I, I, I'm sorry I disobeyed, you, obeyed, disobeyed your will, I, 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 I shouldn't have been so foolish, Instead, he says, those people over there disobey God, but I. I am going to, look at this, sacrifice and pay my vows. That's the external show of religious devotion to God. Now, verse 9 ends with a true statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This especially is the truth that Jonah has compartmentalized to his own experience. He's just fine with being delivered by God. You know, God, you can, you can do extraordinary things to save me, like send a great fish to swallow me. Wait, wait, wait. You mean God has moved heaven and earth to put a fish right there at right exactly the right time to swallow me? Did God move heaven and earth to save you and me? Yeah, he did. Can you look back on, on your experience of coming to Christ and you go, wow, I, I would never have seen that coming. I know I did. I, I, you know, just suddenly <laughs> all my opposition to God just melts away. And there I am. It's God moving heaven and earth. And there he is, saving Jonah in a spectacular way. Did you see that? Spectacular. I mean, who gets saved by a great fish? So Jonah's just fine with being delivered by God, and he's right to acknowledge that. Okay? Yeah. This is, he's following the right form. He says, yeah, I, I know it's obligatory to thank God when you get saved from certain disaster. But he's not willing to say that it's possible for the Ninevites to be saved. He's happy enough at his own deliverance, but he's unhappy about Nineveh's salvation. We're going to see that. He is going to pout like... I mean... Like, the greatest of all time, pout, 
is going to take place in chapter 4. He's going to be so mad. You know, we could just as easily say, salvation of the Ninevites belongs to the Lord. But Jonah will have none of that. But you know, God repeatedly tells His people that He wants obedience that comes from a whole heart. He wants hearts that are fully His. He wants completely repentant hearts. And that's the thing that's missing from this song. So we need to spend a moment to think about repentance. Now, I'm not going to give the, the once-for-all definition of repentance that will, uh, will satisfy your definition of repentance for all time, but we need to spend a moment to define it as God wants it from Jonah. We want to see here that Jonah needs to repent. And because the book wants us to put ourselves in Jonah's very wet sandals, we also see that we need to repent. God wants your heart to be fully His. And when I say fully, I don't mean sinless perfection. We'll, we'll have to wait until the resurrection for that to happen. You cannot be perfect before then. Now, just because you can't be perfect doesn't mean that you, it excuses all sin. It just means we just need to be realistic. There's no way you can be perfect before the resurrection happens. But we do want to have a real connection between what we say we believe and how we actually think and act. And when there's a disconnection between those, it's time for us to repent and to change direction. So let me take a stab at a definition of repentance. Okay, that's on the next, I think that's on the next slide. There, there it is. Yeah, repentance. Now, now again, this is my definition. You could, you could probably think of others, uh, but I, I'm trying to encapsulate what it is. Repentance is the recognition of wrongdoing and a turning of the heart towards God and His glory and away from a sinful self or people-centered agenda. Now, I'm, I'm, drawing, I'm drawing that from lots of places uh, in the Old and New Testament. But I mentioned the glory of God in this definition because it encapsulates why God does everything that He does. Okay, I've got some, I've got some verses on the next few slides here. For instance, Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His... Now notice... It doesn't say holiness. It says, the whole earth is full of His glory. I've heard it said by more than one person that uh, glory is what happens when God's holiness goes public. Isn't that a good definition? I, I forget who said that, but I've heard it said uh, several times. Maybe I've said it several times. Who, who knows? Uh, maybe Jonah's the author of that definition. Oh, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord... That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And uh, Isaiah 26, verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. That's, that's the same verb, by the way, uh, that uh, is used in chapter 40 
Those who wait upon the Lord shall, shall uh, uh, um, exchange their strengths. They'll rise up like eagles. Okay, so in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Those, those texts are worth memorizing. Wanting and working for the glory of God is aligning ourselves to God's plan. And so my definition of repentance that we, ju we just have looked at covers all people, even though perhaps it looks a little different for the unbeliever than it does for the believer. Now, for the unbeliever, for the person who has never trusted in Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, it's changing one's mind about God, about sin, about being right with God, about who Jesus is. It's turning to God for forgiveness of sins and for the beginning of that relationship with Him. For the believer, the person who has put his, his or her trust in Christ, repentance is turning away from the sin in one's life and back to God and His plan. It entails confessing that sin and looking to God for forgiveness. Now, we commonly think about repentance, don't we, in connection with unbelievers, non-Christians, people who haven't come to Christ, because it's more frequently directed to them when we read it in the New Testament. Uh, but the scripture reading this morning, I, I, I put there because I wanted you to see that believers need to repent as well, and I'll, I'll make that point a little bit more forcefully later. But unbelievers need to change their minds about their sin, about God, and about the gospel. And so, uh, for instance, the Gospel of Mark reports Jesus' early public ministry as a repetition of and a continuation of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, Mark uh, 1, 14 and 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And uh, in his farewell speech to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul summarized his ministry in almost the same way. Acts 20, verses 20 to 21 say, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul there lets us know that the gospel is for all people, and it always has been. It always has been. Now, uh, let's, for a moment, I, I want to take one example of repentance in the Old Testament, because we have more to say about repentance in chapter 3 and about what it looks like, so I'll, I won't steal my own thunder for next week. So, uh, but... Solomon's dedicatory prayer for the opening of the temple in Jerusalem uh, uh, speaks of repentance in terms of turning back to God. So I want you to see this. In, uh, it's in uh, uh, 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, that's a reflection of, of Deuteronomy 28. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. 
So at the, even at the very beginning of, uh, of the existence of Solomon's temple, we have this note about repentance. Many repentance verses in the Old Testament, like this one, are about national repentance, which would be, uh, it's, it's kind of a collective repentance, if you will. And so uh, for unbelievers in Israel, this would be them turning to God for salvation and for for the believers, it would be turning back to Him uh, and uh, uh, being restored to the benefits of a relationship with God. Uh, the idea about national repentance is that, that a majority of the nation or all the individuals in the nation all turn towards God. Now, that's just one example and one word for uh, repentance of the Old Testament, turning again or turning back. There are others that we'll explore in chapter 3. But the turning of Israel back to God, her repentance, is the focus of much of the prophetic message in the Old Testament. Actually, you could probably summarize most of the, the minor prophets, okay, the ones you know, where the, the pages of your Bible stick together you, because you haven't read them or they're very, very short books like Obadiah and Micah and places like that. It's basically... Get with the picture, guys, right? Or I'm gonna come. Uh, I'm gonna come down there and ruin your day. Okay, that's my that's my uh, dynamic paraphrase of much of the Old Testament. It's a call for unbelievers to turn to God for forgiveness, and it's a call for believers to return to proper worship of God. And Israel's history is the history of rebellion against God. Look at what 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse 13 and 14 say. Yet the Lord warned Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and Judah, that's the southern kingdom, by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I have commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Well, now, there's repentance for unbelievers, but there's also repentance for believers. Our anti-hero Jonah, the believer who, as he said to the sailors, fears Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land needs to repent, and so do you and me. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You should memorize that text because you need to use it. Okay. I never need to use it. Okay, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to see if you're still awake. Of course, we all need to use it. Nowhere in Jonah's song of thanksgiving do we find a recognition that his predicament in the water is of his own making. Look at what he says in uh, 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 verse 3. You cast me onto the deep. Uh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jonah. You asked those guys to throw you in the water, Right? Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Driven away? 
Oh, come on, Jonah, don't use the passive voice. You're the one who left. Jonah has repented in part, but Jonah's like his fellow Israelites. See, you know, this is directed to uh, the fellow Israelites. They're supposed to read this and go, hey, that's me in that text. They need to repent fully. Uh, Isaiah 29, 13 says this. This people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far away from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Repentance needs to be a complete turning to God with the whole heart. One of the foundational texts of Israel's religious life, their relationship with God, is called the Shema. It's so-called the Shema because the first word of Deuteronomy 6.4 is Shema. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an imperative. Hear. Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Foundational text, all. And uh, uh, all, all means all, all the time, in this text anyway. So let's ask this question Have I repented? Now, I know that's a leading question, right? Have you repented? Just answer the question, yes or no, right? And, and we say, well, I guess it's a little more complicated than just a yes or no, right? I mean, because Jonah repented, yeah. Did he completely repent? Uh, that's the, the, whole, the whole point I've been making is, no, he didn't. And he needs to repent completely. He, he, he isn't... Uh, we don't just want him to feel sorry about being thrown into the water. We want him to come back to God. Jonah's partially repentant song of deliverance invites us into the water with him. We must go there if we are to be delivered from the sins which are keeping us from glorifying God fully. We need to engage his experience and feel the weight of his emotions and his calamity. Only we must emerge from these turbulent waters with a transformed heart fully committed to God's glorious plan. Jonah has been delivered from death at sea. But he refuses to acknowledge that the Ninevites can have deliverance from eternal death. So we have to spend some time in introspection with the insight gained from Jonah's situation. Think about this. We've been delivered from a fate far worse than drowning. I, I, I can't think of a, a worse way to die than drowning. Uh, I just, it's terrifying, isn't it? But we've been delivered from something far worse, haven't we? And there are areas in our own lives which we have not completely turned our heart to God. Some blind spot we cannot or will not see. Some area where we don't want God's grace and salvation to extend to others. You know, when we think in these ways, we've put the truth of God 
into, our, uh, into a box of our own making. And we're not letting that truth out to have its transforming power in all of our lives, uh, in every area of our thinking. God wants His truth to invade and occupy every area of our hearts. So we must recognize, as I said at the outset, that no person is beyond the reach of God's mercy. No person at all. We have no right to declare that someone or some group of people does not deserve God's mercy. I mean, you think about Jonah has been sent to the Ninevites. It'd be like, it'd be like a, a Ukrainian evangelist sent to the Kremlin. Okay, just to think about current events. We have no right to declare that someone or some group of people doesn't deserve God's mercy. Every human being, other than Jesus Christ our Lord, that's ever lived or ever will live is undeserving of God's mercy too. You don't want it to be fair. You certainly don't want it to be fair. You want... You want justice for them, but you want mercy for you, don't you? Yeah. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. We must recognize that no area of our lives is beyond the reach of God's mercy. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. We need to repent the way Jonah needs to repent if, number one, we call on God and see His hand in our own salvation and yet have wrong thinking about His character. We need to repent the way Jonah needs to repent if, number two, we thank God for forgiveness and hope others aren't forgiven. Or we need to repent the way Jonah needs to repent if we accept God's blessing for us and yet keep it from others. Jesus excoriates the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you because you know, you're keeping people from getting into the kingdom. And you know what? We're all capable of blindness and arrogance. We, we, you know, there's just things you can't see. You know, someone else can see what's wrong with you quite easily that you can't see, Right? And uh, that's, the, that's the whole occupational hazard of the, uh, you know, the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own. <laughs> you know, everyone else can see that. But why else would the Apostle Paul write in uh, Romans 12, one, uh, 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need that transformation. We need daily repentance. Martin Luther, that great theologian of the 16th century who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, he recognized and appreciated that even those who have a right relationship with God uh, by faith need to repent. And when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, that's kind of like the bulletin board uh, for the church, his very first of the 95 little sentences he wrote uh, that needed to be discussed publicly 
says this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said, Ponitentiam agite, which means do penance or repent, willed that the whole life, the whole life of believers should be repentance. Wow. Now, King David was a man of insight into our most besetting sin as people. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way, literally way of pain in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, that's what your uh, ESV will say here. Let, let me give it to you another, in another translation. The New English translation, the Net Bible, says, Examine me and probe my thoughts. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any idolatrous tendency in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now, you say, wait a minute. A grievous way or way, uh, a way of idol? Okay, now, uh, put on your thinking caps with me here. I'm, we're almost done. But I, I, just, I just want you to think about this for a second. In this, in this context here, the, the Hebrew expression on this next slide is derech oseb, way of derech. And we, we have this word oseb, which can be, can be uh, uh, seen as either the word pain, so a, either a grievous way, the way ESV has translated it, or oseb meaning idol, way of an idol. Okay, so these, these two different words are spelled identically. Okay, it's like the word trunk, right? You run up the trunk of a tree or put something in the trunk of your car. How do you know which is which? Well, if you're a native English speaker, if I say, I put it in the trunk, you'd go, you'd, you wouldn't say, like, the trunk of a tree? What? Okay, so you see what I mean? Here, we've got a, we've got a homonym here, and in the context... Uh, it's more true to this idea of this in the, in the psalm itself as David is denying faithlessness here to say to God, see if there's any idolatrous tendency in me, show it to me. See, David understands all too well that there are parts of our human tendencies that would lead us to love idols rather than God. That's our besetting sin. Really, all of it kind of boils down to that. You and I might not have little statues at home that we bow down to, but we have idols, believe you me. We can't see them, but we have them. Anything that we put above God becomes an idol. Anytime we love the gifts God gives us more than we love the God who gave them to us, we have made an idol out of what God has freely given us. So David asks the Lord in Psalm 139, show me any of those blind spots that I've got. Show me where I am not letting the truth come out and affect my whole life and for me to be able to see it in the lives of others. David asks the Lord to show him his blind spots, so that his heart will become ever more and more God's property. So friends, 
Let's ask God to show us our blind spots and the parts of our hearts that are not fully His. James tells us that our loving Heavenly Father in His mercy will give us wisdom to know His will and to obey Him. Let's pray.